Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in this week for Scott Schaefer, and we are so excited to talk with one of the leading voices in the American labor movement. That's right. Los Angeles State Senator Maria Elena Durazo will join us to talk about her life and career and how she helped make L.A. a union town, even though back in the day, the L.A. Times didn't think it was possible. They were doubters. <laughs> but first, uh, as always, I feel like, busy week in politics, Guy, um, the big news this week was the recall proponents who want to recall Gavin Newsom have turned in what they say is well uh, enough signatures to get this on the ballot. And we also saw the governor actually come out and finally start answering some questions about this effort, which he has been very focused on not saying the R word until now. Right. So I would say, yes, the deadline itself uh, is important. We won't know probably until next month, whether or not this qualifies. But this week was definitely the start of the counter campaign from Gavin Newsom against this recall effort. And I think we can say humbly, it might have began with your interview uh, last week, last Friday, with the governor on KQED, kind of laying out, I think, the case that we're going to hear for the next few months, right? Yeah, I mean, humble brag, right? Yes, he called us up. We talked to him. Um, I asked him what the recall was really about in his mind. And he really started with what I think what we're hearing from Democrats across the nation, essentially, which is this is a Republican effort. This is an effort to really attack not just Newsom himself, but the progressive sort of principles of California Democratic politics. Um, And, you know, I think we're going to see an increased uh, attempt to tie this to former President Trump and also to really see if they can get the Republicans can who are going to be on the ballot against him to kind of circular firing squad each other <laughs> a bit more. Right. And, and I think you also saw Newsom kind of bringing the gang back together, the artists formerly known as SCN, uh, his, his advisors, kind of lining up the team that will be running this campaign. It was interesting. I mean, you've covered Newsom for a long time, Marisa. I was thinking about this week, looking back, how mistake-free that 2018 run for governor was. I mean, it was really gaff free there were no the, the kind of uh, headlines that in some ways sparked and propelled this recall initiative namely that dinner at French Laundry 
there really that didn't happen in 2018. Maybe that was the outlier in his career. Um, but I think that's going to be something to watch in the months ahead because on paper, the registration advantage, the baked in political advantage is with the governor, right? He yeah. won by a huge margin in 2018. The registrations have only uh, further advantaged Democrats. It's really about, I think, two things. Who will get into this race, right? Is there a Schwarzenegger type candidate? And then just avoiding those kind of huge uh you know, mistakes, unforced errors, I guess you could say, yeah. um, that could galvanize people against him. Yeah, I mean, I would add, I don't think that French Laundry alone did the trick, right? This was really the result of that extension that the judge gave to collect the signatures, which kind of coincided with French Laundry, with the surge, with same the anger. night. Isn't that crazy? Happened yeah. on the same day. So I think that this is, and I, and, I, and I talking to folks close to the governor, I think there's a, they feel like a misstep potentially in not challenging that more forcefully in court. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think that this is, um, there's so much that the governor needs to kind of go right in the next few months around vaccines, around schools. Um, but and it's easier to run against one person, John Cox, than it is to run against essentially yourself in a recall. Um, but, you know, Newsom, I think, has a, as you said, a very experienced team around him. He is um, a pretty, you know, veteran politician. And I think that you do, you know, yes, it's easier in some ways when you're not under the microscope of governor, but it's also you have the incumbency and all the advantages that come with that. And we are seeing that this is going to be a national story, a national race with both parties really putting everything in. I mean, this we're going to be the Georgia of November right. 2021, right? We matter. No, but I think it's that you make a great point about the incumbency. I think, yes, the deadline being this week may have been a huge trigger for why Newsom is starting this anti-recall campaign. I also think it's the fact that he's now gotten his agenda done, right? It's almost like he's showing up to the cookout. He's showing up to the dinner party. He wants to come prepared. And he has rent relief done. He has economic stimulus done. He has the school reopening incentives done. And the COVID situation looks better than ever before. He's showing up now with kind of bringing something something to the table. I think it was important for him to finish that legislative agenda before now campaign season is on. Shots in arms, man. Kids in chairs. Like, those are the two big things. Um, all right. Well, we're going to turn to our guest in a minute, but we I can't let this kind of go by without acknowledging the horrific attacks in Atlanta this week. Eight people dead, six of them Asian-American women. Part of just what I think the AAPI community feels like is just this onslaught of racism, um, you know, attacks. We've seen this in San Francisco in the Bay Area area um and and acknowledging just the trauma and how terrible this is we are a political show um i do think this to some extent changes the politics around the attorney general appointment that the governor is about to need to make uh javier becerra just today was confirmed as hhs secretary in biden's administration and um i don't know guy do you think this rob bonta has been sort of the name he's an assemblyman from oakland filipino um a lot of people have been pushing him and including folks not just in the asian american community Right. No, I think I think that's right, because, look, this is a problem that's happening here. Right. If you look at the self-reported data from from Stop AAPI Hate, California, the Bay Area, we are the hotspot for this violence, this just senseless violence that's happening. Um, And so I absolutely do think we heard from folks like David Chu, Fiona Ma saying, you know, a top priority for the next AG has to be stopping this violence against the AAPI community. Um, And so I think you are going to see this way into the governor's decision on on who's going to be the state's next attorney general. All right, Guy. Uh, Lots more we don't have time to get to, including something you did this week, right? That's right. So I uh, had a conversation with uh, new Senator uh, Alex Padilla of California 
on the day he gave his first floor speech on the Senate, kind of talking about the what's going on um, at our southern border, the challenges that both legislators, the Senate, Congress, President Biden are facing um, around housing migrant children. Um, to get those details, to learn more about that conversation, I want to give a shout out to our Political Breakdown newsletter. Get it uh, every week in your inbox. You can sign up at kqed.org slash political breakdown uh, to find that interview and all the rest of KQED's political coverage. Yeah, we take turns. So you get to hear from me, Guy, Scott, Katie, all the gang. All right, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be talking with State Senator Maria Elena Durazo. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here at Guy Marzarati, and we are thrilled to be joined by Maria Elena Durazo. She's a state senator representing the 24th District in Los Angeles. She's also almost single-handedly uh, <laughs> responsible for so much of the labor movement in Los Angeles and their power there. Welcome to The Breakdown, Senator Durazo. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Guy and Marisa. Great to be here with you. Well, we want to go back to the beginning, like we like to do, um, and talk about your childhood. You were born in Madeira. I think you were one of 11 kids. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and, and your childhood? Well, uh, my siblings were my friends, um, and that's that's who I grew up with. So a lot of, uh, uh, and I'm, I feel very lucky for that. A lot of people grew up different where you had your siblings, if you had any, and then you had your friends that you went to school with and year after year and you remember, you know, hey, remember when we were in sixth grade and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's not the way it was with us. Um, our family traveled out of a flatbed truck, uh, kind of like the hillbillies. You remember the Beverly Hillbillies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little except, different, though. A little different. Except, except we didn't have the grandma uh, the on the rocking chair, you know, up there. <laughs> but you know, it was what it was. You know, our, our our my our parents believed in hard work. They weren't afraid of it. They knew we had to survive by working hard, and so we did what we had to do of working in practically every crop. Uh, up and down California and even into Oregon. We did green beans in Oregon. But, you know, it was, uh, you were always with your family. Um, and maybe that's why we're so close uh, to this day. 
is we can tell those stories and laugh about those stories and um, what it was like and hey remember we did this and that and whatever but uh, we knew that we were all pitching in uh, to help support the family. And your parents uh, were immigrants uh, from Mexico and I know you've you know talked before about your dad and, and how he how much pride he took uh, in his work. What did you take from that? I what I take from that and what I we also grew up with being a lot of, around a lot of other both immigrants from Mexico and migrants, for example, from Texas. There are a lot of migrant farm workers who came in to California, certain crops, and then went back to Texas. So it was it was people who worked really, really hard. And I grew up not only learning to work really hard, um, but I learned, I think, to grow up respecting the people yeah. who did that work. I mean, that that's in fact, that's what motivated me to go want to go to school because I said, this is I can't do this for the rest of my life. This is extremely difficult, whether it was the hot sun or whether it was in the wintertime when it was, you know, foggy in the valley and yeah. cold. Um, the, these these are the kinds of things that move me today as to what um, how we should respect uh, the value of hard work. And we should respect that in a number of different ways, partially compensation, but partially is just acknowledging them. And, and this term essential has come up now, and I don't want to fast forward too fast, but um, uh, these are essential workers. And uh, we, we very rarely give the recognition that we should to people like my mother and my father. I mean, what you're describing, moving around, not having a house, I mean, we would call that homelessness now, right? I mean, you guys didn't have one place. Um, and I'm curious, like, then how did you go from that um, and, and the poverty, but also just not being, you know, the, the instability to some extent to ending up at St. Mary's College here in the Bay Area? Eventually you got a law degree, but even just that, I mean, was that something your family expected or that you um, took on on your own? Well, my uh, my father uh, expected us to do the best that we could. He was uh, very demanding. But the reality was, and I owe it to my older siblings, the reality was that, you know, they, as they got older, and um, some of them, you know, didn't even get to graduate from high school because they had to go work to support the family. I mean, came a certain point where we weren't traveling, you know, uh, up and down and we began to settle down. But then that meant, how do you support the family if everybody's not, you know, working as much as possible year round? So he, um, you know, uh, I, I owe it to them that I'm number seven in the family. Had it not been for my older siblings working in jobs, whatever they were, and contributing to the family, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had the opportunity to graduate from high school and, and go on because how else, you know, how else yeah. would family have survived? And we, you know, that it, it was really important to him for us to go on to school. In fact, as sort of as macho as he was in some ways, in other ways, he, I remember him telling me, you know, you have got to go to school, you have got to learn how to take care of yourself so that you don't depend on a man. 
to take care of you and so that you have the ability uh, to do what you want to do. But um, but I know my older sisters would have loved to be in that position, but they sacrificed a lot for the rest of us. Yeah. Right. Do you remember the first time you encountered political organizing, political power? Was that at St. Mary's in college? Actually, it wasn't. Um, I had an older brother. Uh, he was the first to go to college. Unfortunately, he, he passed away while he was in college, but he went to Fresno State and he he was the first activist that I've ever met in my life. He was uh, at Fresno State. He got involved in the Chicano movement. And of course, we had the farm workers movement going on at the same time. Uh, you know, the war was going on in Vietnam. Uh, some of the programs uh, to recruit uh, 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 people from from uh, Latinos and, and African-Americans uh, was was going on at the same time. So there was all this activity and he joined it and he joined it and he first approached me like to help me stay in school and get ready for college and then be able to apply for college. He helped me go through all of that. But he also took me to my first march ever in my life. And he convinced mom and me to go to it. And it was the Fresno version of the Chicano Moratorium in East LA. And I think it happened in a number of smaller smaller cities. But uh, mom and I were scared to death. <laughs> We're like, oh my God, what are we doing? What are we, what are we doing here? But he, he was such um, a beautiful person, beautiful human being that we just trusted him. He took us and here we were, uh, an anti-war march. Who would have ever thought it? But it, it, it was great. And, uh, and I, I owe it to him. He's the first one who exposed me to activism. Well, clearly it planted a seed. We mentioned you went to St. Mary's, which is here in the Bay Area. Um, and then you ended up going back to Los Angeles um, with your young son. And and, and I'm, I'm not clear, did you go to law school and then start working at a labor firm or were you working at the labor firm and that's why, uh, law firm, and then you went to law school? I started law school um, while I was at the, um, at I started law school when I was at, the um, garment workers towards the end of okay. that. So you and were working already went, in the, the movement. And then I went to um, I went to go work at a labor law firm. Um, and then I all of that happened around the same time. I wanted to make match up. Here I was studying law, but in fact, I had to keep a job. So the combination of the two. And you know, I, I if I can just mention real quick, um, I went to law school. It was four years all night after work every day. Um, and a woman who took care of my son in her in their child care center, um, you know, we got to be friends and she's and I mentioned something to her. I was thinking of going to law school and she says, I will take care of Mario for you for any number of days per week. You go do what you have to do. And it was such wow. an amazing yeah. thing to have a woman for four years take care of my son four nights a week, never got paid for it, and she did it just to help us. And, and you I, trusted, I and you trusted her, which I'm sure made it possible. Also, yeah, yeah. Right. So we want to get into uh, your career in the labor movement in LA, but I guess maybe just to start, if you want to step back, and you know, nowadays. L.A. is kind of known as a hotbed of labor activity, labor power. 
That certainly wasn't always the case. Can you kind of talk about what that dynamic was like when you began your career? Well, I'll just say when I got elected to the president of my union, the Hotel and Restaurant Workers Local 11, um, there was no, um, there was strength in the labor movement in a very traditional way, which did not include low wage workers from industries um, that relied on low, you know, on immigrant workers, on, on black workers. So there was some strength, but it was for certain sectors of the labor movement, and it wasn't a broad sort of working class movement that included immigrants, that included um, security officers, or that included home care workers or hotel workers. So it it it, it had its its place um, and very influential. For example, with Mayor Bradley, um, but it. It didn't have this broader, more connected uh, movement to the rest of working people, and that's what it was like. So um, Latinos didn't, uh, Latino citizens really didn't vote much, um, and so ended up being uh, ignored. I remember, um, I remember several elected officials telling me, "Well, what do you got to offer? Your your members are dishwashers and cooks and housekeepers. They're poor. They don't have money." Um, many of them don't vote. And so what really, almost saying, what do I care about you? Yeah. <laughs> and so we really had to turn that all around because we weren't going to win what was needed for um, those low wage workers un until we had both uh, their power in the workplace, but also their power at the ballot box. Well, and I mean, when you caught to the hotel union, it sounded like the leadership was just completely ignoring the needs and 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 everything about their members. I mean, they weren't even translating meetings and things like that. Um, right. But a lot of you mentioned you got elected. That was after sort of an internal fight, and uh, your um, late husband Michael Contreras, who's another just giant within the labor movement, came to LA to try to help turn around the movement from the national. You guys. You didn't like him at first, I don't think, but you guys became this powerhouse. Well, I mean, talk about that. Like, was it was it good being in a relationship with the person that you're building this political movement with? Or is that like, like, do you just go home and go, oh, my God, can we not talk about anything? boundaries? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was the most uh, amazing, powerful, personal and political experience that I could ever have. You know, it was, we love talking about this. We love talking about it. And he had his strength. We were sort of a yin yang, you know, because he had this very, very, he was really smart about political tactics and strategy. I, on the other hand, left that to him, politics. And I then, ironically, I, I was more devoted to, I want to be around the housekeepers. I want to know how we can, um, move this and win this and get, you know, a good wage increase and hold on to our health care. So we, we both did a little bit of the other, but it, it was really, that's what made it, I think, made our relationship so strong mm -hmm. is that we were best friends, you know, loving husband and wife, but we also had this 
this thing about how do we build a power out there, you know? So talk a little and bit. And by the way, by the way, my sons will uh, never, my son will never forget that I used to come home because when Miguel was sent out here by our, our international union, he was sent out here to calm me down, right? And, uh, and instead what happened was I was so, you know, upset, like, you're not going to tell us what to do, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then we ended up, Falling in love, getting married. <laughs> <laughs> we saw we saw a lot of uh, union love, union pun headlines when when looking back at articles about oh, your yeah. career. <laughs> I mean, I'm curious just from the the broader political strategy that you took, and you formed the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy. How did you kind of view the long term mission that you were working on? Not only to advocate for the workers that you were directly representing uh, in the hotel union, but what, can you describe kind of the broader political strategy? Well, I sort of had this, uh, we had this belief that you do the most good for the most people when you teach them to do it for themselves. And, and that, that learning to respect yourself is the only way that you're going to re- get respect from other people. Um, and th- that was the vision is that these men and women, adult men and women, you know, who took have so much responsibility working hard every day and raising their, their sons and daughters, um, they also know how to fight for themselves. And so uh, collectively, you know, they would get together and this is what came of it. You know? yeah. T- today, where housekeepers in a union hotel uh, you know, make over 20, 20 plus dollars an hour. They have free family health insurance. They have a, um, you know, a, a reasonable uh, a retirement plan. Uh, I mean, they have the basics and that's what they should have. Yeah. But they had to fight for it over a number of years. Well, let me ask you broadly. I mean, we have seen, like we said, in L.A. and, and California, labor really flex its muscle. We saw in the presidential campaign, like we were in Vegas last year in the culinary union alone. I mean, the power they have for and have helped Democrats. We're seeing union uh, workers in Alabama tried to unionize in an Amazon warehouse. Uh, the president spoke out in favor of that. Are you optimistic about where the labor movement sits in terms of broader politics right now? Well, I'm most optimistic with uh, President Biden coming in at the highest levels of the nation saying and not afraid to say union, uh, not afraid to say that being in a union is a good thing and that he would support working men and women who want a union and that they shouldn't be uh, put in a position of being afraid of retaliation. They shouldn't be in a position where they're pressured so much, you know, to not vote for a union in a, in a workplace election. So I'm very, uh, very optimistic because of his leadership of, ta- of speaking that way and, and respecting working people in that way. And also I have learned this basic belief that if there is not democracy in the workplace, then our nation will never be as great as it needs to be. And we have to have, men and women have to have the ability in their workplace to be able to speak out. Look at this pandemic. There were two uh, 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 food processing plants, the Foster Farms in Livingston and in Fresno, closed down hundreds of cases, hundreds of cases. People dying, nine people in Livingston. Um, you know, if we don't have working people with the ability to speak up about a public health crisis, um, 
or getting what they need to be able to support their families or working in the fields and, and, and having the option of whether or not to go to work. That's not good for our society. That's not good for us. And I'll tell you, being in state government, what that means is the rest of us taxpayers, we all have to make up for that. Right. right. Well, we all have to pay to provide health insurance. We all have to pay. How are they going to live when they're older? You know, yeah. we have to have these uh, uh, programs to help them, human services. That's not right for taxpayers to make up for that. So all of those reasons is I'm optimistic, but I think it's going to be very difficult as well. Well, you mentioned uh, you are in state government now after decades of pressuring and dealing with uh, public officials. You are one. Uh, what is that like? Are you enjoying it? Are there things you felt like you could do in the Senate you couldn't do from the outside? Are there things you feel like you miss doing on the outside? Is it a letdown? <laughs> <laughs> it's all cracked up to be. You know, um, I I miss, of course, the 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 courage that I always saw daily on a daily basis, men and women in their workplaces, what they go through to raise their um, to raise our families. So I miss the activism in the in the labor movement, no doubt about it. I was around it and did it for decades, um, but there I've gotten to know some extraordinary elected leaders here. Uh, and I'm, um, you know, the more I meet and I see where they came from, what they're trying to do, um, you know, I'm more and more impressed. And and I say that with all truthfulness, because um, I think it's part of uh, um, just like when I was a, a union organizer, um, the first time somebody turned me down to, you know, that I would go visit and say, well, do you want a union? No. I, I didn't just walk away. I got to know them, and they got to know me. And the same thing's happening here in, in the state. All right. That is State Senator Marina Elena Durazo. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Viva la Unión. <laughs> Take care. That will do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Guy Marzarati. A big thanks to our team, Jim Bennett, Jonathan Blakely, Erica Aguilar, Ethan tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And before we go, I do want to take a moment to remember our colleague, Penny Nelson, who passed away this morning. If you were blessed to be able to work with Penny, uh, you know just the love, the energy, the spirit uh, that she would bring into the studio. I think something that stands out to me, Marisa, most hosts when they go in to start taping a show, they warm up by counting the 10 or saying what they had for breakfast. Penny would sit down in front of the mic and just start singing. <laughs> and I think, you know, that tells you everything you need to know about Penny Nelson, a KQED legend. Uh, and Penny, we're just all going to miss you here like crazy. Love you, Penny. I'm Marisa Lagos. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California, the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey. 
It's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.